Well, good morning again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, maybe you're like, wait a minute, that was last week, right? But here's the thing. He's still alive, right? Like, yeah, we celebrated on Easter, but, but that doesn't mean that we just forget about it the rest of the time. Jesus rose from the dead. That's true. We talked about that last week. And because he lives, that changes everything. And so last week we talked about because he lives, we have hope. Because he lives, we have hope. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that we who have put our faith in him, because, because Jesus rose from the dead, we will too. That this life here on this earth is not all there is. We know that Christ is returning one day. We know that those that, that we love that have passed away in the Lord that they are with him right now. And that one day when Christ returns, that that they will be raised up and we will go with them in the clouds and we will be with each other and with the Lord always. We know that because Jesus rose from the dead, we will too. Because he lives, we have hope. So we're not just going to leave Easter behind last week and just push on ahead this way. Uh, We're going to continue a sermon series called Because He Lives. And we're going to be covering over the next couple of weeks. Because he lives, we have peace. Because he lives, we have joy. Because he lives, we have purpose. So I encourage you to, to be here during the time as we get into God's word and look at the effects of Jesus rising from the dead. Because he lives, we have hope, we have peace, we have joy, and we have purpose. And so today we are talking about because he lives, we have peace. We have peace with God which allows us then to have peace within ourselves and allows us to have peace with one another and allows us to have peace in the midst. Because if you look around the world right now, like peace is something that is kind of far from us wherever we look. And maybe if we look inside our own hearts, we may see that peace seems to be far from us as well. The anxieties that can rise up, whether that's based on something that's happening halfway across the world or something that's happening in your own home, like we long for peace. Now, when we're talking about peace, we're not talking about maybe a world's definition of peace, which would be kind of something like the absence of conflict. Okay? In wartime, there is not peace because there is conflict. There is not peace until there's a ceasefire or something like that, where there is an absence of conflict. Or, or maybe in your home, or when you, if you have kids now or, or at home, or when you, when you have kids, that when there was conflict, there, your house was not peaceful. We're not talking about the absence of of conflict, okay? We're not going to be able to escape that until we get to heaven. We live in a world that's broken. We live among broken people. In fact, we are broken people. So when we look at peace, I'm looking at the Hebrew word shalom, which is a word for peace. But it doesn't mean the absence of conflict. What it means is a wholeness or a settledness in the truth. And I think God desires us in the midst of the things that want to pull us this way and pull us that way, in the mix of the anxieties that can rise up in our lives, God desires to have a wholeness or a completeness, a settled confidence in the midst. You see, Jesus said, my peace I give you. Not like the world gives do I give. It's not the absence of conflict. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulations. There's going to be hard things. But I want you to know that I've overcome the world. And so in me, you can have a settled confidence that is there in the midst of the waves. You know, in the ocean, uh, 
Sometimes there can be storms blowing and waves going, but if you go down at the bottom of the ocean floor, it's, the wind and the stuff above isn't bothering anything down there. You see, God desires us to be able to have a peace that can go beyond the understanding of the world. So let's get a little bit into Scripture, and let's explore how because Jesus lives, we have peace with God, we have peace with ourselves, we can have peace with one another, and we have peace in the midst. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Uh, We're going to largely be in the book of Romans today. We will, however, bounce around uh, a a couple different places. And so um, go ahead and, and turn there, and we'll look a little bit about the peace that God wants us to have. Now, as you're turning the book of Romans, Paul has been setting up this argument over the first three chapters. His argument is this. <clears throat> Nobody is going to be able to be declared righteous in God's eyes, to be justified, to be good enough in God's eyes based on what they do, based on the law. He says, look, that's not going to happen. Everybody sins. Everybody fails. Everybody says, does, and thinks things against the perfect will of God. So if we want to be righteous, it's got to come from a different place than the good things that we do or the bad things that we don't do. And and that's what he says in Romans chapter 3. Look, no one's going to be declared righteous in God's eyes based on what they do or don't do. And then he gives Abraham as the example. You know, Father Abraham, the patriarch of of the Jewish faith, like our patriarch, really. And he says, look, in the example of Abraham, God said, Abram, you are going to have many descendants. And in Romans it says he believed God. Now the interesting thing, Abram believed God, but that didn't mean that he always got it right, right? I mean, he believed God, but it also meant that he listened to Sarah and said, well, hey, how about if we can't have kids, how about you have, you have a kid with my slave girl, which that was something that was culturally acceptable. How about you do that? But you see, Abraham believed God in the midst of I'm old, my wife is old, this seems impossible, I trust you, I'm persuaded that you're able to do what you promised. And in Romans, Paul says God credited it to him as righteousness. And he says it's the same for us. When we are persuaded that God is able to do what he promised because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it is credited to us as righteousness. Because we believe that Jesus died in our place, took our sins away, and offers to us the righteousness of God. And then we get into chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, because of all this that we just talked about, since we've been justified through faith, that word justified, here's a way to, what does that mean? It means to be made just as if you never sinned. It means to be declared righteous. Because we've been justified through faith, through being persuaded that God is able to do what he promised, we now have what with God? What does it say there? What is that? peace. This is something we have. If you're a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, you're justified, made just as if you never sinned. You're cleansed. It's gone. And you now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access again by faith, by being persuaded into this what? What does that say? Grace. Now what is grace? Remember what grace is? Grace is favor. And it's not just favor. It's unmerited, unearned. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Favor. It's a gift. Because Jesus died, because we put our faith in God, we've been justified. We now have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith 
into the grace in which we now stand. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That was last week. We rejoice because we have a confident expectation of new life now and life eternal forever. And we rejoice in that, okay? But not only so. Like sometimes I wish Paul would just stop there. Like, yeah, we rejoice in the hope that's coming. Yeah, go, preach it. And then we're like, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. And we're like, really, Paul? You had to write that down, huh? We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces something. It produces perseverance. Or the word is, is really, I think a better translation is endurance. The ability to remain under something. It'd be like if I had a heavy weight, okay? Well, Ted, this is like a super heavy weight. And I hold this up and I have the ability to remain under it and keep it held up until the time is done. That the suffering that we go through, God is able to cause all things to work together for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Part of the suffering is it helps us grow in remaining. Remaining because Christ is remaining with us. He's persevering with us. And as we go through the life of persevering and enduring, it produces character. Now that word for character is provenness. Like as you grow on your faith and you endure, it shows, that there, it, it shows the provenness of your faith. It shows that your faith is real because in the midst of the hard times, God is walking with you through it. And consistently you're able to endure. Perfectly? No, right? We've all dropped the ball, so to speak. But God helps us get back up and keep going. And so we can rejoice in our suffering because it produces perseverance, which then in turn produces character and character hope. Why? Why do, as we go through sufferings, does it help work in us a confident expectation? Because hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the spirit whom he gave us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Why can we have hope? Why can we have peace? As we look in this passage, we'll see four ways that we're described, okay? And the first one is powerless. You see, at just the right time, while we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We were powerless and ungodly. And then Paul says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone may possibly dare to die. But get this, God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. When we had not given God anything yet, when we were ungodly, powerless, and sinners, Christ died for us. And then get this, okay? Since we've now been justified by his blood, Jesus died for us. If you've been persuaded that that's the salvation you need, that's the sacrifice you need, that's the payment that you need, you are now justified, made just as if you never sinned by his blood. So he says, look, if that's true, If in the death of Jesus your sins are washed away, get this, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now that wrath is not capricious. We've talked about this before. God has a just anger towards sin, a just wrath, a just punishment towards sin. And so Paul says, look, if Jesus died and that washed away our sins, made us just as if we never sinned, how much more will we be saved from the punishment? Because get this, when we were at number four, when we were God's enemies, powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies, we were reconciled. We were brought back into friendship. 
to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? If the death of Jesus Christ forgave your sins, now that he's risen from the dead, how much more shall you be saved? That's what Paul is saying. If the death won us this, now that Jesus is alive, it's super abundant. So not only is this so, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we received reconciliation. Because Jesus died, we have peace with God, period. We've been justified. We've been reconciled. That means we've been made a friend of God. Okay, Paul, how, why? Go ahead and flip back a couple chapters to Romans chapter 3. And let's look at how this works and why we can have peace. You see, this is the tail end of the argument where Paul is saying, look, nobody's good enough. No one's righteous, not even one. Nobody's going to be right. Nobody's going to be good enough by keeping the law. Okay, and this is what he says. But there's a different kind of righteousness. There's a righteousness, okay, a righteousness from God. It's not a righteousness from doing good. It's a from God righteousness. It's apart from the law. It's apart from the do's and the don't. It's been made known. It's been revealed to us. But it's not just now. If you read the scriptures, okay, to which the law and the prophets testify, it's been there. We just didn't see it. This righteousness from God, again, it's a from God righteousness. It comes through what? What's that word up there? Faith. It comes from being persuaded that God is able to do what he promised. Faith in Jesus to all who believe. There's no difference. And why is it needed? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. Now, when I think of sin, I, 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 I think of this definition that I learned from some people that were involved in a childhood evangelism fellowship, okay? Anything we say, think, or do that's against God's perfection. Or anytime we fail to do the right thing, okay? When we know we should. But the picture in Scripture is, is the Greek word is hamartia, okay? And that word means to miss the mark. So, okay, do you guys see that clock back there? Go ahead, you can look at it. There's a clock back there, okay? It's a round clock, okay? It's kind of like a dartboard, okay? So when I think of sin, I think of darts and a dartboard, okay? So if I were to come here, okay, and I, there's a bullseye right in the middle, okay? That bullseye would be symbolic of God's perfection, and so if I threw it from here, hopefully I wouldn't hit Tim back there, okay? If I hit the bullseye, okay, it's like I, I obeyed God. I did the right thing. Nobody hits the bullseye all the time, right? Missing the mark. That's what sin means. We all miss the mark. We can stand in front of a... Every day, we stand in front of a quote-unquote dartboard, and the choices that we make, it's like throwing the dart. And Lord willing, we're growing, that we're working, and God's working in us. And we, we live out our calling, right? But even there, <laughs> Isaiah says, your, my, your righteousness is like filthy rags. We miss the mark. We miss the mark. So we need something, right? So let's look at the next verse. Everybody's sinned. Everybody's missed the mark. And are justified freely. Made righteous, declared just as if they never sinned freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ died for our sins. He puts the worth back into us when we believe in him. And we're justified. And we are freely given grace. And what's the last part of it? Why? How does that work, Paul? 
Because God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. A sacrifice that covers over. Now, a lot of you know this, right? You've known this for decades. Some of you, this may be new to you. And I'm glad you're here for it. Now, if you're here and you're like, I've heard this, I've heard this, good. I'm glad you have. Because here's the thing. I want the truth to get settled deep into your heart. Because when the truth settles deep into our heart, that allows us, that's part of the process, I believe, of having that settled wholeness and peace in the midst. And in Scripture, we're commanded to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have, right? So I don't want you you just to understand the gospel here and here. I want you to be able to understand it here and here so it can come out here. Somebody asks, how does it work? I don't understand it. You don't just go, well, hey, come and talk to my pastor. I'd love to talk to him. I would. You can share. Look, Jesus died in our place. And his death is this covering that covers over our sins. His death is this, this covering that the just punishment of God is appeased. That's what that word means. He became a sacrifice that pays the price. So now there's just, there's no sin left. There's the righteousness of God given. That's why I have hope, because guess what? It's not how good I am or how bad I'm not. Because I'd be hopeless if that's what it was. But I have hope because I know that I have a confident expectation in heaven because it's not up to me. It's up to Jesus' righteousness. That's why we have hope. And that's why we have peace because God has... This is what it says in the scriptures that the, that was written against us. The law that shows us where we're right and where we're wrong. That he took it away and he nailed it to the cross. That's part of what it is finished. It's nailed to the cross. Because we can't live up to it. And because he took that away, there's not condemnation for us so that we can have peace with God. And if we were to take this to the next couple of chapters in Romans chapter 4, that's why Paul can say, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. It's in Colossians that Paul says, look, the law that stood against you, that doesn't mean the law was bad. We'll get to that in a little bit. But the law that said what's right and what's wrong, and if we look at the law and look at ourselves, we go, ooh, hmm, I don't measure up. The condemnation that stood against us, Jesus nailed it to the cross. And what's the effect of it? If we look here at the next verse. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh or the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. What does that mean, Paul? The law doesn't have power to change a life. The law of the Old Testament was good because it showed what what God required, what was good, how to live his way. And it gave you motivation, right? You ever had rules as a kid? Maybe you didn't want to obey because you wanted to obey, but you wanted to obey because you didn't want to spanking, right? Or you didn't want to be grounded. 
or you wanted the reward that came with obeying. Okay, that's part of the law. Okay, how? Well, you don't have to raise your hand for this, but how many of you drive the speed limit, or at least close enough to the speed limit, so you don't get a ticket? Okay, how many of you, if there was no speed limits, you'd probably drive a little bit faster? Okay, yeah. Now, here's the thing. You ever been driving? Because I've done this, okay? In Holland, where I was at, it seemed like all the roads were fast, okay? Then I'd come to Lansing, and I should know, like, the roads I used to drive on. I should know the speed limit. But I'm like, this is probably 55 miles an hour. I'm going 55. And then I'm like, whoa, 40. Ooh. Good, right? The law showed me you're speeding. You need to change. I changed. Okay? I didn't want to get a ticket. But it couldn't, that speed limit sign couldn't take away the fact that I was speeding, right? That's what the law does. Paul says it's good. The law is good. It shows us a way to live, shows us what God requires, and it shows us where we've messed up. But the law doesn't have a power to change. It doesn't have a power to take away the sin that's already there. So Jesus being a sin offering, being that perfect sacrifice that covers our sin, he fulfills all the requirements of the law. And when we put our faith in him, we're joined with him. So that means the requirements of the law are fully met in us. Because Christ, he met the requirements and we're in him. That's our identity. So we have peace with God because Jesus did the work for us. There's no condemnation. There's nothing that stands against us, so to speak. Continuing on in this chapter, this is a great chapter. We can't cover all of it today, but read it this week, okay? He says, look, you did not receive a spirit of a slave again to fear. No, you received the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption. By him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit testifies with us, with our spirits, that we are God's children. Now if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. And Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. You see, we have peace with God because Jesus lives. We have peace with God because we are adopted. Now, here's a picture of adoption that Paul's talking about. You see, back in the day in in Rome, okay, if a man didn't have a son, there was no way that his title and his, his possessions could be passed on to somebody else in their family. So sometimes maybe he had a slave that was worthy or something like that, and he would adopt that slave to be his son. And here's what happened. That slave had nothing. That slave had its all baggage of the past history of being nobody and all this stuff. And when that slave was adopted, the past was gone. And now he has all the full rights of the son of that Roman man to inherit everything. We have peace with God because God is our father. And he can be our father because we're adopted because Jesus died and rose again. So we don't have a spirit that makes us afraid and cower. We have a spirit that says, Abba, Daddy, Father. And God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we are His. Because Jesus lives, we have peace. Continuing on, we know that in all things, this is verse 28, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Paul says, look, we can have peace because we have peace with God. We know, we have a confident expectation that whatever we go through, good or bad, God can and will work it out for good to those that love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. Because get this, God said, he knew, everybody that's going to put their faith in me, I'm going to work to make them like my son. We're going to be conformed to be like Jesus. It's a whole lifetime journey that doesn't reach completion until we make it to heaven. But we have peace with God because we've been called. We've been justified. And he will glorify us in the end. God is working in and through us. So what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? In the midst of the shakiness of the world, God is for us. We can trust God. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's like, look, if God, your father, already gave Jesus, what else do you think? Like, that's the biggest thing he gave for you. And then I put these in bold. These are some of my favorite verses, okay? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I can be my own worst critic. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? God is the one who justifies. God's the one who has made you just as if you never sinned. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. Wait, time out. Not just died, rose again and is raised to life is at the right hand of God interceding for you. That's mine. That one's mine. I paid the price for that. My blood covers. So who is it that brings a charge? God's the one who justifies. Anybody want to answer to that? Go against God? And who brings the condemnation? Jesus Christ who conquered death is there saying, that's mine. That's mine. And so because of that, we can say with Paul, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see, we have peace because he lives. We have peace because there's no condemnation that's against us. We can have peace with God. And that peace with God wants to help us be able to have peace within ourselves. So we have peace with God because Jesus lives, but that peace with God wants to help us have peace within ourselves. Go ahead and turn to the book of of 1 John, and we'll unpack this just a little bit. 1 John chapter 3. Because again, I I don't know about you, but sometimes I can be my own worst critic. Anybody else there, maybe? Because you know, you know your thoughts that nobody else knows, right? You know the motivations for the good things you do. Like you may do a good thing, but you know like, but I did that in a selfish way, right? And you know the times when you, yeah, I'm, I'm walking how God wants me to. And this is what John said. John, the beloved disciple. He said, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but actions and truth. Let us not just love with our mouths, but by our lives. 
This then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Does your heart ever condemn you? Like you see the wrong that you did? I mean, it's kind of our conscience, I think, sometimes, right? That God has given us. And in this passage, John is saying, God God is bigger than your heart. Because we know the ways that we've messed up. We know the things that want to disturb our peace within us. And God says, you can have peace with yourself because I'm bigger than that and I've taken care of that. So peace with God allows us to have peace within ourselves with the things that want to bring turmoil and anxiety and the things that we struggle with. That God says, you can rest in me when your heart is shaky, when you feel uncertain. I'm the rock that you can always come to to find peace. Does that take away the storm? No, not necessarily. But it helps grow in us a settledness in the midst. You see, we, God has made peace between us and Him, and He desires that to allow us to have peace within ourselves. We can know that we are accepted, approved, and loved, that we are recipients of God's amazing and awesome grace. And I love this quote by Pastor David Guzik. He says this, Grace is God's unmerited favor, His bestowal of love and acceptance on us because of who He is and what Jesus has done. Grace means that God likes us and all the reasons are in Him. Grace means we can stop working for His love and start receiving it. Grace means we can stop working to earn God's love and we can start receiving it and allow it to bring the peace that God wants it to. So because Jesus lives, we have peace between us and God, and God wants to help that grow peace within ourselves, and the overflow of that is peace with one another. Go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. God desires there to be peace with one another, okay? And the reason why I put one another is because it's not necessarily going to be peace with someone who is who's not a Christian, God wants us, Paul does say, whatever, however it depends on you, as long as it depends on you, whatever you can do, live at peace with somebody else, okay? But at peace is a two-way street, right? But God desires us as Christians to live and be at peace with one another. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles, okay? And he's talking about the people in Ephesus. He says, look, you were once on the outside looking in. Because you were Gentiles. You didn't have the truth. But now, verse 13, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Peace is Jesus, who has made the two one. Jew and Gentile one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access by the fa- to the Father by the one Spirit. Then he says this, So consequently, you Gentiles that were on the outside, you're not foreigners, you're not aliens, you're fellow citizens there's unity around the cross of jesus christ fellow citizens with god's people members of god's household you're built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with jesus himself as the chief cornerstone 
In him, the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The peace that God has made between us and him, he wants it to extend out to one another. How does that work? Like this shows us that that's his heart. How does it work? Ephesians chapter 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as what? What does it say up there? Just as in Christ God forgave who? You, me, us. How do we have peace with one another here at Skiff? How do we have peace with one another? Because we don't all agree on everything, right? You're never going to find somebody that agrees on everything that you do, right? How do you have peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is it. God says, be kind, be compassionate, be tender-hearted, forgive each other just as you know how much God has forgiven you. There's a, a great passage in the Bible in, in Matthew chapter 18 where Peter is asking Jesus, how often do I have to forgive my brother that sins against me? How often do I have to do that? Okay? And he's like, seven times? Like a perfect number of times? And Jesus says, no, 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 70 times seven. A perfect times a perfect. Let me tell you a story, Peter. And he tells a story that we call the parable of the unmerciful servant. There was a king who was, uh, it was time to settle debts. He had a servant that owed him, I think it's 10,000 talents, okay? For a laborer, this would take 20 lifetimes of daily labor to, just to earn enough to pay it back, okay? 20 lifetimes of working. So whatever job you have that you worked your whole life until you retired, multiply that by 20, that's the debt. Anybody like, oh, I can do that, I'd pay that back, Yeah? Time to pay up. The guy says, have mercy on me. I'll pay you back. I'll do it. I just need more time. Like, you know, 20 lifetimes, but I can do it. Okay, I added that part, that last part. Have mercy on me. Because he's going to throw him into jail. The king has mercy. You know what? Um, You're never going to pay it back. It's done. You can go. And the guy goes out. I mean, how would you feel? Woo! And he's walking, and he sees one of his fellow servants that owes him a hundred denarii, okay? Sometimes commentaries say, owed him a few bucks. No, hundred denarii, that's a hundred days' wages, okay? Take your salary for a whole year, divide it by three. That's a decent amount of money for one person to owe you, right? Okay? That much money versus 20 lifetimes, okay? It's a little bit different. Give me the money you owe me, he says. I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back. This guy could. It would take a while, but he could, right? But the first servant starts choking him. Pay me my money back. And he throws him in jail until he can pay it back. And the other servants see this, and they're like, you just were forgiven 10,000 talents, 20 lifetimes of working, and you couldn't forgive this? And so they tell the king, and the king says, you wicked servant, look how much I forgave you. I take that back. I'm putting you in jail so you can pay every penny. We realize how much we've been forgiven. And we say, God, help me to forgive in the same way. Love covers over a multitude of sins. We realize how much we've been loved and we've been forgiven. And so God desires a peace with God that we have to work a peace within ourselves and a peace that overflows to one another. We don't have to hold on to grudges and let things go. Is there a time and a place for a loving confrontation? Yes, that's also in Matthew chapter 18. 
but it's in the context of when you go to somebody who's wronged you, you go as somebody who's had a 10,000 talent debt forgiven. And it doesn't mean you just ignore everything because sometimes relationships got to be restored. But you go in knowing that you've been forgiven of way more than what they've done to you. And so God desires us to have peace with one another. Finally, peace in the midst. And you know what? This, this can be kind of a hard one because, you know, our world is messed up, right? I mean, we've had this, this pandemic, right? We've had riots and turmoil. There's a war in Europe, not to mention all the other wars and fighting that have been going on in all these other places in the world, right? How do we have peace in the midst? In the midst of what's going on in our own family lives, in our own community? Is there a recession that's coming? How expensive is gas prices, food, you know, all this stuff? How do we have peace in the midst? In John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, Jesus said this. In John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, it was Jesus' last teaching with his disciples. He wanted to teach them things because, get this, he knew he's going to die, he knew he's going to rise from the dead, but he knew he was leaving them. And he's like, look, I'm going to leave, but I'll come back, and I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You're going to have the Spirit. And this is what he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give as the world gives. It's not the absence of conflict. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. And at the end of it, he says, I've told you all these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. You know what? That's probably one of the easiest promises of Jesus to believe, right? In this world you're going to have trouble. And you're like, yep, I've done that. I've got that. Yep. But take heart. I've overcome the world. In this world we're going to have trouble and tribulation. Just because we're a Christian doesn't mean we're not going to go through hard things. Doesn't mean we're not going to experience whatever we may. But it means that Christ has overcome the world and we can find our peace in Him. We can find our peace in the midst. I'm kind of reminded of Job. Anybody know the story of Job in the Scriptures? A righteous man. A wealthy man. And sometimes I don't understand how all this works, but Satan is in the presence of God saying, and God's like, look at Job. He's righteous. He does what I want him to do. And Satan's like, that's just because he's blessed. You take away his stuff, he'll curse you. And God says, go ahead, just don't harm him. And in a single day, all his kids die. All his servants are killed, minus like three or four. And all of his possessions are taken. And he's left with himself and his wife. And he still praises God. And Satan says, well, yeah, but he still has his health. Take that from him. He'll curse you to your face, God. And God says, you, go ahead, but you can't kill him. And he gets these horrible boils. He's in pain. And the only person he has left with him is his wife, but really in this time she's not much of a blessing. She's like, Job, just curse God and die for crying out loud. And he has three friends that come and they sit with him for seven days just in silence because he looks so messed up. And then they take 30 chapters to tell Job, you must have sinned. If this bad stuff happened to you, you must have sinned. And Job's like, I didn't. And if I did, God, show me. I demand an answer. And near the end of the book, God shows up and says, Joe, put your big boy pants on. Were you there when I created the world? Do you understand all these things, Job? This is your viewpoint. I'm omnipotent. I know all things. Trust me. And you know what? We never know if Job ever understood what was going on. 
But sometimes in the midst of the hard things that go on, God says, you can trust me. You can rest in me. You can have peace. Easier said than done, though. How, how do we do this? Let's, let's go through these last couple of things quickly. Philippians chapter 4. Paul says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, goes beyond sometimes what we can think, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, God wants his peace to rule in our hearts. And here's an interesting thing. We're talking about peace, and that's a military word right there, right? God says, when you face the anxieties of life, the things that want to steal your peace, you can take them to me in prayer, and I will send my peace to guard you. Now, does that mean the anxieties just go away? Does it mean we don't still feel the shakiness? No. But it means in the midst of that, we know we're guarded because God is with us. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah writes that you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is the Lord, the rock eternal. You can trust God. You can trust him in the midst. Whatever it is you're going through, you can trust him. It doesn't mean that anxieties go away. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden the the boat quits doing this. But it means in the midst of it, God is there with you. Sometimes when we want to have peace, it comes from fixing our our focus. If we look back at Philippians, he, he says in the midst of God's peace guarding you, then he says, brothers and sisters, if anything is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Fix your focus on God and then put it into practice. Anything you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Here's something that I have learned and I'm still learning. When I feel anxious and when there's not peace, God wants me to fix my focus on him and from there turn, so I turn upward and outward. I know your word is true. I know who you are. I know who you've made me. How do I serve? And we get our eyes off of just ourselves and the thing that wants to disrupt our peace and turn on the one who's in control and go, how can you use me? And you know what? Easier said than done. I get that. It's a process. I'm not there yet. I'm not. I'm working. I'm growing. Upward and outward. That's how we walk in the peace in the midst that God has given us. Because you know what? Sometimes we look, we already looked at this verse. Sometimes we can look at this and be like, man, I wish I had more peace than what I experienced. Anybody ever been there? I wish I had more peace. I wish I had more trust. How am I actually doing in this? We can rejoice in our sufferings because they produce perseverance. And perseverance, character, or provenness. The reality that you're still here in the midst, still seeking to trust God, you're enduring. And it's that provenness that God is putting in us. And this hope that he's building in us. Because he lives, we have peace. So what does this mean for us? Here's two, two so what's. First of all, let's rejoice in Christ's resurrection and the hope and the peace it brings us, okay? 
This is going to be one of the so what's as we go throughout this. Let's remember Jesus rose from the dead. That's true. It's still true. It's true now. It means we have hope. It means we have peace. And let's seek to fix our focus. Do you know that you can tell your soul, soul, trust in God. I can trust in God. I can trust him in the midst. And we can say, be still and know that I am God. Last verse, Psalm 46. This whole chapter is about the world's going, it's just falling apart. Everything's shaky, but in the midst of it, God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So as our praise band comes on up and we prepare to close out our our service today, I want you to know that because he lives, you have hope. Because he lives, you have peace. Peace with God, peace with yourself, peace with one another, and peace in the midst. So, So how do we get there? How do we fix our focus? There was a man at the, the church that I used to pastor at, and he said this. Read a little bit, pray a little bit. Read a little bit of God's word, pray a little bit. Every day. Help us focus on him who holds us and holds all things. And you know what? We also need one another, don't we? To help remind us of what the truth is. To help take care of one another. Because here's the truth. Because he lives, we have hope. Because he lives, we have peace. Does that mean we'll feel that all the time? No. But even when you don't feel it, it's real. And we take time, read a little bit, pray a little bit, helps and we take time to rub shoulders with other Christians and go through life together and share hearts, it helps remind us of the truth that's there. So will you join me in prayer? Jesus, I thank you that you rose from the dead. And I thank you for all that that means for us. And God, I pray that you will grow us more and more, that, that we'll just see and experience more of what your death and resurrection means for us now and for all of eternity. God, thank you for the confident expectation we have of your good here on this earth, that you will take care of us, that you'll work things out for good, and the confident expectation that you are coming again and we have life eternal in you. Thank you, Jesus, that because you died and rose again, we have peace with you because you've canceled out the sin that we had. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, just take a moment in your heart to just thank God for the hope and the peace that you have. And Lord, we desire to experience more of that peace. So God, will you give us a discipline to be in your word, to be in prayer, to do life together, to focus on you. God, thank you that you said your peace will guard us in the midst. And so when we feel shaky and anxious and unsettled, we know in the midst of that, you are firm and we trust you. Thank you that you have made us, who have put our faith in you, a child of you. In your name we pray. Amen.